Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. This episode is brought to you in part by Dice Bart. Dice Bard is an online shop with a great selection of dice and sales that rotate every 24 hours. So if you ever have your sights set on a specific set but not a lot of cash, it won't be long till it goes on sale. Running for new players and want to get them quickly acquainted with the different dice they'll need? The Complete Adventures Dice Kit has 29 color-coded dice that are easy to distinguish while reaching hastily across the table so they can roll damage for their fireball spell. Visit DiceBard.com and use the code DMVAN at checkout to get free expedited shipping and let them know that we sent you. DiceBard has everything you need to play Dungeons & Dragons, as long as all you need is dice. This episode is also brought to you in part by Libris Arcana, Canada's premier dice subscription service. Every month you can get a new complete set from D4s to D20s delivered straight to your door. Dice themes are new each month and can be anything your mind can imagine and more. Visit LibrisArcana.com to get a subscription for just $7.97 Canadian each month. Use the promo code DMVAN to let them know we sent you. Be prepared to open up new worlds of adventure with Libris Arcana. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about being neurodiverse. Today we're talking to Molly Applejohn. How's it going, Molly? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty well. Sean, how are you? Good. Excellent. Um, so Molly, tell us a bit about yourselves. Um, I guess specifically first in regards to like how long you've been playing tabletop games and running them and then you know anything else you want to cover before we get going. Cool. So uh, I've been playing D&D for about 10 years, but there was definitely a break in between. Uh, I cut my teeth on 3.5 and uh, only ever as a PC. And then about two and a half, three years ago, I started DMing 5th Ed and just absolutely loved it. It added a whole new <laughs> just layer to Dungeons and Dragons. That's like, oh, I can be in control. <laughs> um, well, let, actually, it's, it's less about that. And it's more about, um, you know, creating something that my players can enjoy and reflecting on times that I had a lot of fun as a PC and then sort of paying that forward. Um, I also made a graphic novel called Fox on the Table, which was based off of one of the campaigns that I ran. Um, so yeah, that is my history with D&D. Very good. Very nice. Like one of the things you said in there about like part of the fun of DMing is like watching players react and kind of like interact with stuff and like thinking about how you might've done it if you were a player is one of the things I really love about it as well. It's, it's really wonderful when you've created a puzzle and you watch your players like fuss about it and sit there with concern on their faces and then the joy when they figure it out, it is just such a good feeling. Yeah. I'm constantly surprised by how when I'm thinking of something as a DM and trying to think of like, okay, there's going to be an encounter. There's going to be this person. They want these things. And I try to think of ways that the, the, my players will approach something because I want to try and make sure that I've got, you know, like some eventualities for like, okay, if they do this, then here are some ways that things can go. And it seems like, that's a fool's errand because every time my players think of something that I never thought of and it turns, and it turns out being like, Oh, okay. You guys decided to do 
Z instead of, you know, the A through J that I thought thought of. <laughs> okay, cool. Give me a second. I need to think about this first so that um so that it all makes sense. And then we go from there. Uh, so my, I guess it's not a solution, but how I've sort of approached that is um, when I started DMing, I definitely had everything on rails. I set out clues. I also had a player who was like really hungry to follow clues, which made my life easier. But um, now I take a much more lackadaisical approach. Um, I, I guess you would say I DM like I'm designing Skyrim. Basically, I make a world with various quests that will exist whether my players find them or not. Um, and I just basically, like, when I write down ideas, I just write down a whole lot of ideas. Rather than basing my ideas on what my players are going to do, I, I just base them on, like, the geography and the existing characters in the world. And they've all got their own individual stories. And then the players will choose the story that they find most engaging to them and follow that. And then I will develop it from there. Yeah, that's what I've been been trying to do. I'm just... I'm constrained now because um, recently about, uh, I, I want to say six months to eight months ago, I can't remember exactly when, but two of my players moved away. So we switched to Roll20 and with Roll20, there's a whole set of constraints there with like how how easy it is to respond to what the players do. So mm. like when it comes to like the players deciding to go uh, like, oh, instead of going to this town, we're going to go over to this town because of a rumor that we remember from three sessions ago that you, the DM, has forgotten about, which means <laughs> that I have to, like, immediately, like, it becomes much more important to, to ask, ask, the, ask my players, like, okay, take a break for five minutes while I try to very quickly whip up a map for this town. <laughs> because it's i don't know i think it's just me and the way that i interact with world 20 and i think i've said this before on the show that because i can have nice maps i feel like i have to have nice maps uh fair enough uh i i've also used roll 20 um what i really didn't like about roll 20 was the when you have people responding with different sort of time delays maybe you were playing like all at once still but when we were playing we would just let people sort of respond as they want um it made it really hard for me to like organize where people are um, I mean, yeah, the, the map thing is nice, but I also, I don't like to be constrained by maps like that. Um, the only time I will ever introduce a map is if I know it really well. Otherwise I'm just, I, I guess you could say I'm kind of a jerk about it and be like, no map for you. You just gotta figure it out. Um, another thing I've done is, I mean, obviously I will design my dungeons and I love watching players try and map my dungeon. Like so, sometimes they will draw it themselves. But as far as like cities and stuff go, I don't know. I, I find the like, yeah, the access of the shiny maps is like maybe can be a bit of a like falling hazard for DMs because now the players have the information and they can like call you out. Well, that's not there. And it's like, well, I said it was because that's how I designed it. I, I, I definitely DM in a more like creative fashion. Like I have a whole bunch of books. I think Jesse has seen our vast, vast book collection. It's and, a and what stack. Yeah. I will read through them, um, but I don't want my players to be able to like trip me up in the future unless it's something I'm prepared for. So I I, I, I always homebrew, basically, even if I'm writing like Eberron or I love to run uh, Forbidden Forbidden Realms. It's 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 always it's always homebrew so that they don't have that power. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I actually want to say because I I play in a game that you run. 
Um, I come from a background where we always had maps all the time for combat. Um, mm -hmm. And not that we've had a ton of combat, which is also refreshing, but I'm really enjoying playing without them too much because it lets me not super worry about it. Well, it focuses on the role play a little more. Um, and it focuses on problem solving in a, like a conversational way versus a like pouring over a map kind of way. For sure. Um, and it, it, I think when you are offered options, you will tend to choose them versus coming up with your own. Though I guess we just had the discussion that that's not always how it goes because when you come up with the options, then they find they find the extra one. They find the one you didn't anticipate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's. I guess, get on topic. <laughs> um, so Molly, mm -hmm. uh, how does being neurodiverse inform your DMing? Well, I, I honestly, not terribly much. The biggest problem for me, I, I guess problem, there's also some benefits. Okay, let's start with benefits, actually, is that um, I have really poor executive function, which means that I struggle to remember things, which means that list making is a lifesaver. <laughs> so I have books and books and books just filled with those campaign ideas and those that sort of the world and the plans um, to reference. But it also means that um, like my, my world is nice and fleshed out, I think, because when, when you get into list making, you know, I'm not just going to make uh, one character for you guys to interact with. I'm going to go ahead and make like 20 <laughs> so that they're just around. I definitely struggle with in character, out of character sometimes. Um, people aren't using voices, especially, because if you, if there's no, like, this is out of character at the table, it's like, eh. Um, to be fair, I'm not sure that the characters have always committed to being in or out of character <laughs> when they're talking. Um, and, of course, all of my characters are going to be autistic because I'm autistic. Um, but I do my best to just not think about that. I don't try and make my characters neurotypical. I would strongly not recommend a neurotypical person tries to make characters autistic because the differences are too subtle. And I, I think just playing it in an inclusive way is, is like more important. Just that this is a fantasy world. Let's just engage in this fantasy world without uh, fussing about that too, stuff too much, I guess. That makes sense. Um, like you had mentioned before, like, do I worry about accessibility in game? And I was like, a strong no. I play a fantasy game because I don't have to worry about social anxiety. <laughs> um, when I'm PCing, my characters, they don't have social anxiety. Like, I guess I say everyone's autistic, but I, I would say that would be more in, like, speech patterns and, like, failing to recognize sarcasm versus, like, their actual constraints in the world. They're not going to have those constraints unless I really choose to make it that way. That makes sense. So... You, you said that some of these were benefit were your were kind of benefits you found. So are there are there any problems that presents for you? Um, like I said, not always understanding um, like sarcasm is a really big problem for me, um, which can kind of trip up banter <laughs> uh, when someone said something really hilarious, but I just I really don't get it. So the character doesn't get it. Um, PCing it's almost more of a problem because PCing if I want to be a character who's like cool and suave. I'm not cool and suave, and it's, it's very hard to fake being cool and suave. <laughs> At least that's what I find. Um, because, again, you're... Or, or I, I guess when I'm DMing, again, like, cool, smart, wise characters will often miss, like, little social cues. But then at that point, it's just like, retcon! And it's usually not a big problem. You know, it's... Um, I also find, like, 
being because I don't feel like I'm like I'm kind of like a charming or particularly like wise or intelligent player. Those are always the the most difficult ones for me to play too. It's just it's hard to especially like I mean I'm I'm not neurodiverse, but when I try and play characters that are more intelligent than I am or more charming than I am, I always feel like I'm falling flat every time. It's tough. It's fun. But I mean, that's that's the challenge of D&D too. Um, it's just that it's not like video games where you can truly like immerse yourself in this charming character and they will just be charming for you. <laughs> um, you really have to like put in the effort. But Beyond that, I think it's more of a boon than a problem because I will think about things obsessively, which means I will think about my campaign setting obsessively. Um, I guess it also means that sometimes I'm off my game because I'm thinking about something else obsessively <laughs> instead of my D&D game. But I would hope that not all DMs are 100% committed to their uh, the game and there's little space <laughs> to uh, obsess over it here and there. I, I generally will plan like a ways in advance at a time. Uh, and then, like, I, I instead of prepping every week, I'll do, like, one really big prep every month, or if in a longer game, less often, so that I just have all these storylines and then sort of review it. That's really, that's actually, I think, just a useful tactic for anyone. I should try doing that when I'm running homebrew stuff, because... Well, yeah. it, it alleviates the stress of they have to get to this place in this session. Like, I, I really want to make stories available instead of pushing them on you. Yeah, that makes sense. Which means a lot of times in my campaign, I do have characters just faffing about. It does it does happen. And, and when I first started, it was a really big problem. One of the first jokes in my graphic novel is I we spent an entire session trying to decide whether they wanted to walk on the road or through the moor. Literally three hours of which way are we going to go? Because <laughs> I had plans both ways, so it didn't really matter to me. But at some point, it's like, just go! <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think the go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I think that kind of plan like that's actually how I tend to plan as well. I try to plan a few sessions ahead and it's for me it's because I'm lazy and <laughs> if I can do 3 sessions worth of planning in one day, that means that it's less planning I have to do on other days. But I found the that like when it comes to doing the planning that I've started to kind of do the same thing where like I plan not exactly what's going to happen. Like I'm trying to, trying to get away from like, Oh, if they decide like they're going to trying to get away from assuming what my party is going, what my players are going to do, because it means that I end up more often having to ask for like a couple of minutes to go off and draw a map or figure out what the hell is going on. Whereas if I kind of plan more broad strokes, then I just rely on, the skills that I've built up over the last four years or so to like fill in the blanks when it comes to actually what happens during a session. Fair enough. No, that, that makes sense. I'd say a boon I have being neurodiverse is I have a nearly photographic memory. So once I lay those plans, usually I can look at them. However, it doesn't apply to auditory it's as I have to see something <laughs> in order to remember it. So Jesse, I'm sure you've seen, I jot down notes madly. Yeah. Um, while we're playing so I guess that would be that would be a problem is if something occurred and I didn't write it down my chances of remembering it well are really really low and it may need to be explained to me again whereas if I write it down that it's it's in the vault safe forever just to go back kind of two topics real quick uh to the you know not knowing like not being able to play like as a dm play the like if you've got a character who's supposed to be you know cool and suave or charming or whatever I've I think 
all DMs have this problem, you know, like because players players have this problem when they're trying to play somebody with a with an 18 charisma and they don't feel like they have anywhere near that much charisma or trying to play somebody who's really wise or trying to somebody who's really smart. I think something for anybody to to keep in mind is that people aren't a hundred percent charismatic all the time. Like everybody has off moments. Everybody's going to have moments where they say, even the wisest person in the world is still going to have moments where they say something just incredibly (laughs) dumb. Um, So I think what's what I, what I've tried to do when it comes to playing characters who are supposed to be a certain thing, whether that's, you know, really wise or smart or charming or, or even just like somebody who's supposed to be really aggressive or something like that. I found that even though it's a huge time sink TV tropes and Mm -hmm. looking up a character, like if you want somebody who's supposed to be really, really charming, really suave, um, like go and find a character who is that thing and look at some of the tropes for that character and just pick like one or two. And just try to keep those in mind for like when you start to role play as that character. Like, oh, there's there's this one thing that if I drop it in, if I pepper it into conversation, or I try to remember that like this character, there's this one thing that this character won't do because they're charming. Then I found that that tends to help a little bit because instead of trying to think of just oh this character has to be charming and thinking of charming as this giant amorphous blob of characteristics just trying to narrow it down to just one or two things that make this character charming i i agree and i disagree i agree because absolutely when i'm writing a character who's like far away from what i am i will i will heavily lean into like making them i guess almost a parody but my caution with tropes would be is that i think a lot of us come to dungeons and dragons to create our own tropes to escape what uh has been presented to us in the media and to expand on it and I, I try, I, I guess I see some danger in like committing too seriously to tropes because I, I want to create a world where being wise is something that is dictated by me and my players. Like what it is to be wise isn't necessarily dictated by like um, MTV's idea of wise. Probably MTV doesn't have an idea of wise, but you know what I mean? No, and I, I totally understand. And I, I agree with you. Like the, I think it can only ever really be a starting off point. Uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to like, because as a DM, you're trying to create usually, especially if you're homebrewing your own world of, you know, you're mm-hmm. trying to use this world to explore different ideas of what it means to be a thing, whatever that thing is. And using tropes, even if you like just look for a trope and then decide like, okay, I'm going to use this trope, but I'm going to subvert it. I'm going to use it differently. I'm going to turn it on its head. I think there's yeah, exactly. the starting off points. For sure. I think as long as you're aware of that, because I've definitely been in games as a player where the DM was like leaning maybe too heavily on tropes without being uh, necessarily aware of what that's going to look like to the players. Like, because as a DM, like you, you also, it is your duty to make your players feel safe in your world. And I think tropes is a really fast way to make players who are, um, who, who are any kind of diverse, really feel unsafe because like you you have to just be careful like what you're relating like for example like if you're playing a sexy trope like that's a really dangerous one to be looking to media for because uh i I had a campaign where a a male player was playing a female character who was in fact supposed to be 
the whole like twist was that it's a it's a male character in a female character's body so they're doing like a they're performing a male's view of sexy and i'm like this is so problematic i don't even know like <laughs> where to start with this you know what i mean like in in a campaign full of women though i would also say that that doesn't matter that you should be careful with those tropes even if if nobody at the table is going to be offended because that's almost when it's it's just as important because then they're going to carry that forward right yeah um like even the most like gentle tropes can be really really dangerous like if you look how often for example villains are gay coded stuff like this yeah for sure and there's i think there's definitely the responsibility for the dm to be aware of their players and what will make them uncomfortable and just trying to like make it so that the table the game that you're running is inclusive for everybody at the table and i also think i feel very strongly that as a dm we also all have a responsibility to try and you know use the like the responsibility we have as as somebody running a game to try and improve people sounds like such a like bad way to put it but it's like i i absolutely understand i don't think necessarily improve people but show them a different way yeah. like let them think about it right because as soon as you're using subversion you you're like especially like you, you said when you're subverting a trope and you're making that obvious like then you're encouraging them to think about it no maybe you're not like improving them as a person but you're at least giving them space to think about something a little bit differently which is always helpful yeah giving giving people a safe space to like introduce them to ideas that they might not be introduced to every day as part of their their non-D&D lives. Absolutely. Um, and, and like, I mean, we see with things like Rat Queens and Adventure Zone that, like, this is why D&D is so beloved. Like, because, I mean, like, honestly, it has become such an important part of the current queer culture. And I think because of that, because of the ability to take what you've seen and turn it into what you wish it was. Um, especially in the fantasy genre, right? Which has been like traditionally just, just gross, yeah. just nasty. Um, yeah, D and D is really wonderful that way, and giving you the power to make it what you want, um, to decide what you want to be wise. But I mean, of course, that's still what you want to be wise. You still might not be able to perform that because otherwise, if we could all perform what we wanted, then everyone would be excellent. <laughs> well, probably not. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, and I think that there's. I think every DM is going to have a different point where there's like a, you know, intersection of like capable and comfortable uh, where a DM is like, there's that sweet spot of what they're able to do with regards to portraying characters that are different from themselves and what, and that area where they're comfortable portraying characters that are different from themselves. Because uh, for me, when it comes to trying to portray people who aren't cis male white guys in a game like i'm i do try to have at, at the very least more female characters and there are things that i'm just not going to be comfortable trying to portray because for me i'm going to be worried about basically just getting things wrong and and you know having a character who's supposed to be for example the topic we're talking about neurodiverse like i don't believe that i'd be able to portray a character in a genuine fashion. So I'd be worried about trying to do that. And I'd probably stay away from it. I would honestly strongly advise staying away from that. Um, I, I thought about that one a lot. I, I think if you were going to approach writing a neurodiverse character, I would just say like this character is neurodiverse and not worry about it 
too much beyond that because everyone is a little different. You know what I mean? Especially, especially if you're playing in a group that doesn't have anyone autistic in it, because then suddenly if you're writing an autistic character, a neurodiverse character, you are now creating expectations in those other people who are not neurodiverse. And that is a really dangerous game. Like it, you're, you're creating expectations in them and like what they're looking for, what their perception of neurodiversity is. And I just, yeah, I don't know that I would condone that. That being said, I, I don't think it would be impossible to write a neurodiverse character as long as like when you wrote them, you weren't like, okay, what autistic quirks am I going to give them? Um, because honestly, the differences are not that enormous usually. Um, like I would consider my characters, lots of them to be neurotypical, <laughs> even though I am not neurotypical, so they may not come off that way. That That's sort of the approach I would take. Um, maybe people would disagree with that. I would just write a cool character. Maybe give them something like very, very, very small or subtle versus being like, this is Fred and he doesn't talk to people, but he's really good at math kind of thing. Yeah, that, and that's exactly where that like capable and comfortable, where that kind of comes together. And like, I think for me with neurodiverse characters, I'd probably just put it as like you know a character who's introducing somebody like a an npc who's who's neurodiverse would just just say that and then move on like not try to dive into like how are they neurodiverse and like all these like all that kind of stuff whereas whereas when it comes to like i'm much more comfortable or you know saying that like oh this character this npc who is female has a wife like that is something I'm a little bit more comfortable portraying because it's something that I am a little bit more familiar with just with people that I've known in my life who have been gay or bi or stuff like that. Whereas I have no references, no real world. Like I don't, I might know people who are neurodiverse, but they, nobody's, nobody's told me the, nobody's like, aside from you, who has come out like we know that you're neurodiverse because you've told us, but I don't know anybody else who's, you know, as part of introducing themselves when I meet them for the first time at work, have said, you know, I am neurodiverse, so I don't have anybody in my life that I can use as. No, I don't want to say use them as an example. That's really bad. So that that does that is making me think about something. Is um actually introducing characters as neurodiverse again especially if you're using their side characters and not people you're worrying about writing too much is a really good way to normalize autism like if you have a character roll up and be like yeah i'm autistic doesn't mean you necessarily have to write them differently but it does it adds them to the world i guess i say that and i'm like i know that there's somebody who would be really angry about that (laughs) um because if you have no i i mean like that that's sort of the general encouragement is like diverse but that's not the story you're telling right like you include them in your world for sure without their stories being the story you're telling and you had kind of gone into that and i think that was that was like a really perfect yeah. way i think it. one like one good example is um my characters my players are part of a uh, mercenary guild and recently mm-hmm. as part of trying to take back a city that had been overrun by a bunch of evil dudes um they had to choose where to send a bunch of other groups other like fire teams basically uh you know tell them Mm -hmm. like decide like okay these ones are going to go to the hospital because there's a bunch of people hold up there and we want to protect them these ones are going to go to the palace these ones are like they were basically 
put in charge of where everybody was going to go. And I had written up descriptions of all of these um, sword arms. That's the term that I've been using. Um, and I, it just, I, like, I was trying to, I was trying to think of something that's like analogous to fire team, like the way that the military. Yeah. Just so you know. But uh, I, I gave them like write-ups, like just, you know, here's here's one sword arm it's got these four people like there's you know this orc woman who like and a couple there's like a couple of small character traits and and for a couple of them i'd i put in like oh yeah these two are married and you know like in in a in a couple of cases it was a woman a woman or a man and a man like trying to show that in this world nobody really thinks of being gay or bisexual as a thing it's just just part of the fabric of the world and what you were just saying about how like trying to normalize it, like that's probably where I would put something in like that. Like, Oh, this person, you know, this person who is in a mercenary group is autistic and that's all there is. Like that's all that I would put in. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I'm just, I'm thinking about this and like, I think the really, really important thing with inclusivity is to realize that it's not about the game. It's about the table. And that when you're looking at, like, am I practicing good inclusivity, um, how you're DMing, like, the story you're writing is a really, it's, it's almost a small part of that um, when you look at, like, who you're writing for and who you're inviting to your table. For example, obviously, like, groups of friends are groups of friends who come together. Um, you just, you really want to make sure that, like, the reason that you are trying to be inclusive isn't so that, like, you can get the gold star for being a good storyteller, but because it's, it's important. You yeah. Know what I mean? You shouldn't be doing like performative inclusivity. It should be doing it because it's, you know, the right thing to do or for the story that you're telling. Exactly. And I think, yeah, I'd say more of that, um, like as a, as a DM is going to happen, um, not in the game, but in, in how you're living your life. I mean, my first, my first game before it's funny because I didn't know I was autistic yet. We, we had a very, like, a, a an Asperger's player who, I'm just trying to find out, figure out a way to say this, presents more obviously than I do. And it was, it was fine. We, he could play what he wanted. It never really came up. And just, like, in your world and what you're putting out, I, 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 I don't know. I, it's, it's always very nerve-wracking, like, walking that line between uh, inclusivity and diversity and 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 being PC for the sake of being afraid or being PC for the sake of like self uh, promotion, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, cause, cause that's another thing. Like we, we like to think that Dungeons and Dragons happens entirely in our house at our table. But the fact is, is it has grown into a much bigger machine than that now. I mean, you're doing a podcast is now going out into the world so when we when we discuss these topics, it, it's it's maybe changed uh, how we it has it has to change how we play a little bit because how we play now is going to be out there. Like I made a, a graphic novel, so I can what happened to the table did not in fact stay at the table. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's that's a very important point because yeah, most people are probably going to play, and it's only ever going to be them and their friends at the table or on roll twenty, but. More and more and more people are starting to play performatively. They're playing on Twitch or they're making actual play podcasts or they're doing, they're recording it and putting it on YouTube. And even if like in those situations, I feel like 
if you only ever have one listener or one viewer or one subscriber, that's still somebody that you have to be aware of how you're performing this game for, like how you're presenting your game and how diverse, how diversity works and all of that kind of stuff. Because, you know, we put all this stuff, like if you're putting this stuff out into the world for people to consume, you have to be aware of how you're presenting various topics from neurodiversity to sexuality, to, to race, to all of these things. And, and why you're presenting them is yeah. really important as well. Um, not just presenting them for the sake of diversity, but like, if you are really interested in uh, like, promoting your I don't say promoting your diversity sounds a little strange but if you're like really interested in creating some autism awareness instead of just being like well I'm gonna write an autistic character like I would go and I would actually research autism and like the autistic point of view and and read like I, w- I would strongly caution against going to like Wikipedia and being like what are the symptoms of autism and instead like just looking at maybe some Twitter accounts by autistic people or, you know, real, real people, real base your characters on real people, not on lists from Wikipedia. Well, that comes, yeah, because that kind of comes back to an important thing to remember about neurodiversity isn't one thing. It's like a spectrum, right? We were talking mm-hmm. before the show about my friend who's also autistic and you and her are very different because you are different people. You just both happen to be neurodiverse. But no, like you said, like neurodiversity is absolutely a spectrum and most of what would be considered like typical signs are signs that have been noted by people who aren't neurodiverse and th- therefore those symptoms aren't necessarily being read accurately for example perceiving someone as being like emotionally hypersensitive when they might actually not be at all it might completely be a sensory issue that like you're witnessing but because that's not the stimuli that you observed you're going to start making assumptions right yeah it's 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 definitely like a whole world and it's just, it's just never, again, it's just never good with those kind of things. I don't think it's ever good to rely on tropes. Yeah. Um, it's very, 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 very dangerous thing to do it's because then you're also perpetuating that trope, which I don't know. Perpetuation of tropes just makes me. <laughs> I, yeah. I think when it comes to like, if this is one of those areas where D and D because of the fact that it's a collaborative storytelling game, tropes work very differently from TV show or a movie or a book or a comic because in in a book or a comic like you're not interacting with those things you're just experiencing them and mm-hmm. it's much easier to use a trope in those situations um, because not all tropes are problematic not all tropes are bad but but like how secure would, do you feel in deciding which are and which aren't but I, 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 I think when it comes to tropes that. about neurodiversity about other topics like race and sexism and stuff yeah, like that those are the ones <laughs> that i feel like in a game of D that you have to be and incredibly careful with and, it, and what you were saying about research is something that we talked about on a previous episode about dealing with with race in games and as a white dude like there are things that i have no idea how they work because i am like i said i'm just a white dude there there are experiences that i have no idea what they're like and looking at tropes on tv tropes are not going to help i have to actually go and do proper research which means talking to people and it's the same thing for neurodiversity like i have to go like if i want to 
actually portray somebody in a game, I have to actually go and do proper research, which, like you said, isn't just going to Wikipedia. It's actually going and talking to people and reading articles by people who are neurodiverse and not just assuming that "Ah, I can do this. Speaking to that, I do want to go back to the tropes because you you mentioned earlier you don't think all tropes are problematic. But I do want to point out that when you are viewing what you may perceive as a positive trope is it can be really insipid as far as what's wrong with it. Um, Because things so often tropes are, are coming from a white male gaze. Almost any trope that you witness in media now Um, unless you are quite particularly seeking out diverse media, is coming from a white dude. Which means even if it seems harmless, it's still just perpetuating how, like, you know, the hierarchy is seeing the world. Basically, um, any any trope, any any given trope at this point is is, is coming from that place, right? Which, when you're a white dude, you can't see it because, like, you're not expected to. Fair enough, yeah. And and Um, I understand, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas, uh, for, for example, something that happens to me a lot is I table at conventions, I sell a Dungeons and Dragons graphic novel, and people want to tell me about their campaigns. And the tropes that all male <laughs> teams will use about women that they think are harmless, that are like, completely not, <laughs> that are extraordinarily harmful, like, well, I can write a sexy character because she should be able to own her sexuality. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. You are a man writing a woman for other men. That's not what's happening here. <laughs> it's just, I I would caution always triple think every single trope, no matter how comfortable it seems, because that trope is always coming from the view of somebody who is in power every time. I guess my question for this then would be, if you if somebody wants to portray a neurodiverse or... Uh, a sexuality that is not their own the best place to start is to go and talk to people and read articles from those viewpoints so that you better you better understand how to portray that and then once you have that better understanding because the thing is is that as a i think just as a person like we're always going to try and fall back on whenever we're portraying somebody in a game like we can never fully inhabit the mind of somebody else like that's just limitation limitation of yeah, being a, a person <laughs> like but it's like you're not expected to that's where it, it always comes back to that golden rule of like in your world don't tell their story right um because as much as it might seem fun to tell the story of an autistic person like it's it's just maybe you can't basically and i know a lot of people have like a really hard time with that logic uh, especially in like the artist community they're like it's a game i'm gonna do what i want and it's like well ultimately you can do that but it still makes you an asshole <laughs> because it, it means that you are doing something because they don't perceive that like this is harmful because now your players are reading into that and now they have internalized this in such a way that it is actually is harmful moving forward um like i i, I honestly i would just again in your world not don't tell their story would be like the bottom line for me on any kind of any kind of diversity because i mean yes i'm a woman and i'm metis and i'm neurodiverse there's still a whole lot of things that are like way out of my wheelhouse that i will include in my world um but again i will not tell those stories they they they're background stories they are existing they are happening they are normalized 
but it is strongly not my place to make the decisions of those characters, basically. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I am now better informed and... I, I know that's like a really tough pill to swallow, though. I mean, uh, <laughs> not, not really. I mean, I, I mean, it's it's kind of the whole thing with trying to be. I'm always trying to be better as a DM, and the part of that is trying to be a better person because I'm trying to be, you know, inclusive or at the very least not showing, not being derogatory towards people who are different in whatever way they're different, whether that's neurodiverse or their race or their sex or their gender or whatever. And part of that is just being open to being told there are things that I'm just not going to be able to do as a white male DM and, or there are things that I'm not going to be able to do as somebody who is neurotypical or whatever it is. There are stories that I'm just not going to be able to tell properly and that's okay. And, and that is okay, for sure. It doesn't mean you don't have stories to tell, right? And again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be inclusive in your world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's really it's really important to still try and be inclusive. It's still important to do the research. Like, I think what I'm, I'm definitely not saying is like, give up, <laughs> give up and never learn about any of it and just give up, you know, just only write what you know. Like, because obviously if we did that, then things would definitely not be moving towards diversity. <laughs> So, so I think still doing the research, even for the background characters, is like completely worth it. And just, you know, for like your own experience as a human, and especially as a human who writes characters, it's always just good to, to research, yeah. right? To listen to other voices. Um, and making mistakes is completely okay. Like that's, a, that's the other side of this is for players and DMs, everyone's going to make mistakes, right? There has to be space for that. There has to be space to make a mistake and then be like, Oh, I'm sorry, and then be forgiven. Um, I do think yeah, that that's very something that we well. we covered in the in the episode where we talked about race. Is that as a DM, you have to be open to players calling you on something and going, "Oh, sorry, I will take a note of that. Try to do better research next time. Try to do better for next time." Because yeah, nobody's none of us are perfect. We've all got things that we're going to mess up, and the difference between a bad DM and a great DM is somebody who is open to saying, Oh, right. I got that wrong. I will do better next time. Absolutely. And it also, it just, it gives your players like a better sense of trust with you. <laughs> Cause I mean, like, let's be real. Dungeons and Dragons as a game can be a really like emotionally charged thing. Anytime you've got a long-term game and long-term characters, I think it would be foolish to presume that there's not like some pretty serious emotional attachment going on there, which can make making those mistakes, uh, especially if you have not established that that ground of, of fixing them, really, really, really kind of uh, tumultuous, I guess. At least that has been my experience with Dungeons and Dragons. I have... I've been in moments that are so emotionally charged that you like players end up screaming at each other in character. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I won't go into that this time, but yeah, it, it's definitely something I would, I would almost like to see addressed a little more is like mental health and relationship management in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, because for example, when you're polyamorous, you have to learn a lot of things about managing relationships with different people, which also apply to people that you're playing games with versus just people, you know, you're sleeping with. So because I think it's it's easy to forget that there are people behind those characters sometimes when you get really intense, especially when you like really want the story to go one way or you're like just really committed to an idea. 
Um, and I think it's it's really important for people who are neurodiverse and neurotypical to always manage that. And actually, that that might be a place that uh, uh, neurodiversity sort of applies is 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 struggling with those lines, those like emotional lines and walls um, can be very difficult when things start to get charged like that. Um, sort of in game versus out of game, like feuds and yeah, such. That definitely makes sense. It can be hard to tell if someone is actually mad at you <laughs> or if their character is just mad at you. Um, and also, again, it depends on the person because some people will, they, they, they get, they inhabit their character that if their character is mad, well, they, they are in fact yeah. angry. Well, it's, um, it's one of the styles of players or people who are essentially playing fantasy version of themselves, which is fine. But then they tend to really kind of inhabit those emotions away from the table. And I, I yeah. as a player, have been guilty of that. And it's, it's a thing I try and not do <laughs> anymore. Yes, I've definitely learned some pretty serious life lessons about uh, taking emotions away from the table. <laughs> Especially with all like interdating that happens, um, which you can be safe from if you're in a monogamous relationship. But for some reason, Dungeons and Dragons and polyamory is like a really big overlap. And so you see a lot of these like romantic relationships happening like in game that turn into romantic relationships in real life that then just like explode because it's a relationship that is literally built off of fiction. Um, it, it happens, honestly, it does. I mean, I met I met my husband in D&D, but I was playing, I, 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 it was my first session and I was playing a gnome that had a bandolier and rode a rhino, so I wasn't so emotionally invested, fortunately. <laughs> I, guess, I guess a rhino riding gnome could absolutely be a love interest, but it's, it's not what I was going for. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the benefits of being a DM is that because you have to play so many characters, you don't... It's not as, yeah, it's not as intense. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can still have your, like, DMPC. Um, I'm a fan of DMPCs. Some people really don't like them. I'm like, you know what? Let your DM play. Like, let them have a I already have way too much to manage. Trying to manage a DMPC as well would just destroy me. Oh, I was just, I, I like to pepper them in as like, just in case guidance, in case they, they really can't figure out a puzzle or like, it's like, I don't know. It's like their Siri. I think they can be. <laughs> their their Siri for that world. Like Janet. Exactly. Exactly. Like Janet. Exactly. Um, I wrote this DMPC for a really long time called Ornan, who was just this elf who had all the knowledge of the world. So it was exactly <laughs> Janet. It was exactly Janet. He was like a bajillion years old and it was. It was good because also he doesn't have to answer questions because he's a character, right? So if I don't want them to have the information, well, it's very easy for me to contrive a reason that he's not going to tell it to them. Yeah. I think the NPCs also have a really good, like, useful mechanical boon for the players, especially if you have a smaller party and you just, you know, you need that healer or you need a tank or whatever. It's a really good way to put those in the game without having to find another player if you, you know, don't want one. For sure. And also, like, if a player is going to be missing, now you can flush your party exactly. out again, just having them on hand. So then you're rolling up a million characters all the time, which is definitely my least favorite part yeah. about TMPCs. <laughs> my last game, I made the mistake of having, like, three or four characters that were, like, accessible for combat, I guess, like, in an RPG. Oh, no. <laughs> like, persona, they're like, boop, 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 choose this one. And then I was like, no, this is this is way too much work. <laughs> trying to keep all oh, these geez, characters yeah. going. Um, I guess... Uh, it, Probably that happened because my background is mostly in video games. I don't know if this is apparent to you when you're PC in my world. Is that like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm also playing Skyrim. I'm giving you, I'm giving you Skyrim is what I'm going for. You know, I haven't picked up on that because um, the way you run, I find that it feels very fleshed out. So it always feels like I'm just in a really well thought out setting. 
good. That's that's what I want. But like, if you were to, for example, to be like, screw this noise, I'm going on a different quest. Like, I would, I would please don't do that. But I would, <laughs> I would have something ready for you. I, I never want to be caught in the lurch. Um, though I think I do all right with uh, like the off the. Uh, I can do the role play off the cuff really easily, but I definitely get caught up in the rules. It's more the rules I need to have prepared in advance because. I don't seem to be able to remember those as well. I've been playing D&D for about as long as you, Molly, and I still don't remember most of the rules. <laughs> I mean, I can say I played for 10 years, but really I played for one year, then didn't play for a really long time, and then played for three. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and so one thing I really appreciate in players is them being calm. Something I've noticed as a, a female DM is I get rules lawyered a lot more than male DMs do. Like, a lot more. <laughs> it's really frustrating sometimes. Especially because when I'm writing a homebrew, sometimes I will also homebrew rules, which doesn't seem to go over as well as when my male compatriots do it, I've noticed. Um, you guys haven't done that to me, the group I'm playing with right now, which is really wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get to the point where I'm just going to seek groups that don't do that. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be called out. I'm always happy to be called out and look out, look up a rule, like 100% of the time. It's it's the tone of what that's happening in. Is, is that happening in a, uh, let's check this rule together? Or is that happening in a, oh, you don't know this rule and I know this rule? There's a difference between <laughs> kind of I'm playing a barbarian and my core feature is this and you got it wrong. And I don't believe you know these rules. Like there is a huge difference exactly. between those two instances. And and also there's the third uh, option of just I'm rules lawyering because I want every advantage that I can get because that's how I have my fun, which is not a player I want to play with, but they're out there. No, I, I, I agree that there's definitely that kind of player in existence, and uh, I'm not that kind of DM. That drives me absolutely insane. Um, though I have found that if you can sort of, you can sometimes apply that player to your advantage <laughs> and just let them be your rules book. Depends on their attitude, if they don't mind that too much. Uh, our friend we played with who was neurodiverse was absolutely like that. He knew every rule of 3.5 inside and out. He min-maxed the most insane characters and campaigns were very, very, very short um, because he would want them to die so he could make a new one and he would get sick of like the campaign setting because he would have learned all the rules to win, basically. Um, he, he wanted to win. <laughs> he wanted to win D&D. And I'm like, no, let's, let's not play D&D in a way that we can win it. But it was, it was really helpful when the DM could not remember some rules and we'd just be like, hey, <laughs> so what happens here? And he would have the answer. But he was also fine with that. He wasn't ever angry. He was never angry at the DM for not knowing. I guess that's really the like the important piece is like, are you angry at them for not knowing or are they angry at you for not knowing? Because I mean, I, I want to apply the same grace to my players, right? Like uh, if they're like, I don't know how many dice to roll. I'm not going to be like, well, then you shouldn't have played a rogue. <laughs> not nice. <laughs> or just throw them all. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a really big fan of like a collaborative and laid back approach to Dungeons and Dragons, which really works for some people and really doesn't work for others. I think that tends to be the most fun way to play is when everybody's, when you're actually playing D and D as a collaborative storytelling game and not as a video game or as a you versus the DM where, or anything like that, like just playing it to have fun and collaboratively tell an awesome story and scare the pants off your players, maybe sometimes. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, thing. I mean, we're playing later today, and uh, I'm going to have to reread the terror rules. <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Don't worry. I did earlier, but for some reason, they just have not been sticking with me. So bear oh, with no me worries. today. <laughs> no, 
I'll, I'll I, was, have, I, yeah, I, for sure. I read them a while back and I think I was looking at it and going, you know, what my biggest frustration with the monk is instead of getting wisdom as one of their saving throws, they get dex and strength, even though really you're only going to be using one of them. Oh yeah, that is, that is a bummer. But again, like that's the kind of thing you can bring to your DM and be like, Hey, can I have a wisdom saving throw? And I'll be like, yeah, that's right. chill. That makes sense to me. <laughs> Um, I'm always happy to change rules. If there is a good story reason for a rule to be changed, then I will always change the rule because I think yeah. the story is more important. The only thing is, is keeping it consistent. Like, no, I won't change the rule. Like in the middle of the battle, you're like, uh, actually, never mind, because it no longer benefits you. Well, then I'm going to change my mind. You know what I mean? Then I'm like, no, that, that's not going to work. But in advance, always happy to create characters that have their rules tailored to their player as well, because that's my favorite kind of character yeah. to play. Uh, my favorite campaign I ever played, the DM made, he just, he wrote a whole Montbank class for 5th Ed for me, and it was delightful. <laughs> so I got to be a Montbank, and even though the rules, you know, like, were shady from 3.5, he just changed them and made them Wait, is it pronounced happy. Montbank? I've been saying Mountebank. <laughs> I always thought it was Montbank, but that's because yeah. it looks French. I don't know. I we will have to wrong. look this up, because I... <laughs> We can both be wrong, and it's like Mountie Bank. No, I, I highly doubt that's what it is. I think I'm pretty it's sure it's Mount Bank, but I, I think we're getting into the uh -oh. weeds a little bit no, here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we might be at a good point to to wrap end. up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, is there any last uh, things that you'd like to say about the topic of neurodiversity in D and D? Yeah, I'm just gonna like really kick that horse and be like inclusion, not not like representation. I guess. Keep them in your stories, but don't tell their stories is the most important thing. And, it, and including neurodiverse players in your campaign. I think when it comes to like, if you're trying to make a secure place for your neurodiverse character, I would worry more about the actual what's going on at the table versus what's going on in the story for their comfort level. Because they're not going to feel their autism if you can do that successfully, right? They're not going to be thinking about their autism while they play if you can make it a nice safe space for them. You don't want to be reminding them constantly like, guess what? You're autistic and I haven't forgotten about that. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> That's not cool. That's never cool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, yeah, it's well-intentioned, but uh, like making sure that you're playing in a space that has a quiet space available is really important. D&D can get very loud. Autistic people can have a hard time with that. It's always important to have a quiet space available. Being patient with them if they make role play mistakes out of, uh, for example, a really common one for me is failing to understand sarcasm. Um, like, let them retcon that. It's do not hold their character to being that as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, th I think it's it's it kind of comes down to just like making your table a place that is fun and safe for everybody, regardless of whether they're neurodiverse or not. Whatever hangups they bring up bring to the table whatever whatever's going on in their head you want to try and accommodate that so that everybody's having fun because that's at the end of the day that's what we're all here for we're here to have have fun tell some cool stories and if that means that if somebody needs to be able to say like hey can we pause for five ten minutes i just need to go into the other room for a little bit like whatever it takes like as a DM, you're there to make the game fun for everybody. And I would say, is the DM try and like preempt those needs? Like, I mean, obviously you can't be like omnipotent, but I think it's really good to take it on yourself versus on your players um, or, or whoever's hosting, I guess, more so than the DM also. Um, just because at least my, my experience with like anecdotally is it's really, you don't want to bring attention to the fact that you're neurodiverse, right? So it is so much easier if someone anticipates that for you 
or asks you in advance rather than like calls you out of the table like oh well go away because you look stressed out you know what i mean like yeah it's much better as a dm to say like hey let's all take a break for five minutes to get some water and go to the washroom than to single out like hey we've got to take a break because this person isn't feeling great because they're neurodiverse and they need some quiet time like it's it's better to just no matter who's at your table just be like we're gonna take a break because i want to yeah exactly and just yeah try to anticipate those needs and be patient yeah no i think i think that's good hopefully you're happy (laughs) i don't know if this is a jesse do you think we should ask the the usual final question i think we kind of just did without the phrasing uh so molly uh, usually at the end of the question we ask, or at the end of the episode, I don't know. Have you listened to any? Uh, I would really like to say yes, but I haven't. I'm sorry. I, I promise I will in the future. I've just been super. I, I, I don't really listen to podcasts. Like I have a hard time engaging with that. Uh, like media. I've never yeah. do. I just can't focus. No on worries. Um, so at the end of the episode, we ask people one thing that they like a piece of advice they could give themselves back when they started DMing about whatever our topic is. So advice about neurodiversity in DMing. I actually, I would definitely go back and I would be like, have confidence in yourself. It doesn't make you a lesser DM because I definitely, when I first got diagnosed, the group I was playing with at that time, they completely changed how they treated me and they started infantilizing me and it was shit. (laughs) So um, for all of those neurodiverse DMs, I would say it does not make you lesser. It does not mean that the people who are not neurodiverse are going to know better than you. Um, like absolutely not like that's absurd (laughs) um you know what you know you know what I mean don't let basically don't let your players gaslight you which hopefully your players don't do because they're not jerks but sometimes it's not so intentional you know yeah and yeah that's that that's about it cool uh is there anything that you'd like to plug online places people can find you etc etc oh yeah um so I have a Dungeons and Dragons webcomic and graphic novel called Fox on the Table, which is just, um, they say with the Adventure Zone graphic novel that they cut out all the chaff and they streamlined it. Uh, when I translated my campaign into a graphic novel, it's all chaff. It's just chaff, just a graphic novel full of d chaff. I have a Patreon, Betty Carcross, which is explicit, so heads up, 18 plus only, where I have a horror comic called Nothing Gold and definitely sometimes D&D themed erotic art. So cool thanks so much for coming on molly yeah no thanks so much for having me and i will see you later all right so uh thanks to Haley boros for our wonderful art our theme music is overworld by kevin mcleod you can find us on twitter at dms of vancouver you can find me at jesse the red and you can find sean at sean p hagan and we've got a patreon as well uh for just a dollar a month you get access to episodes a week early yeah and speaking of our patreon thanks to craig chapman and Haley boros for being patrons and um thanks to dice bard and libris arcana for sponsoring the show oh yeah we've got sponsors now <laughs> yeah that's a thing <laughs> dice Woo-hoo! i think who could be better sponsors than dice like you have i'm so jealous of your sea witch dice by the way you were like these are my sea witch dice and i was like <laughs> oh I yeah lester gave me those <laughs> yeah those are beautiful. It's, it's nice because like Chessex had that uh, industry like just by the balls for the longest time. And now finally there's space for, you know, some new creators. And as a result, there are some really beautiful dice around and it's really fun. Anyways, thank you so much for coming on. And yeah. All right. Who hangs up? Do you hang up? Oh, no. Uh, I oh, think no. we go. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>